Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with co-host Sean Cheatham, and we have um, our brother and fellow Particular Baptist team member Andrew Work with us today um, to discuss some pretty big topics. Um, but before we get into that, I want to remind everyone, um, check out our platform, reformpodcast.com. You can find us and other good podcasts there. Also, our blog, theparticularbaptist.net, um, our, one of our contributors put up an article um, today on uh, good works, so please check that out. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and the bell to get notified when new videos come out. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sean, who's going to uh, jump us into our topic today. Yeah, so today we will be discussing uh, Jeff Johnson's recent book, The Failure of Natural Theology. And uh, this book has created quite a bit of controversy, although really it's it's just a, a flashpoint in a controversy that's been going on for a little while uh, within the Reformed world. Um, so we're going to be uh, discussing the book. The book is um, basically about Aquinas and natural theology, but ultimately gets into uh, what Jeff has as uh, problems with parts of Aquinas' theology, namely uh divine immobility and that he thinks that um uh aquinas's uh theology makes god unrelatable um and to get this out of the way we are going to have a lot of harsh things to say about this book um we're not being malicious we're not trying to be malicious here but it's an extremely important topic uh, as it deals with the doctrine of god who god is and um that's something that we as christians need to be um guarded about so uh, in this review, we'll go over um, our views on Thomas Aquinas and interact with Jeff's view, uh, what uh, natural theology is, uh, our view of philosophy, uh, whether or not there is motion in God, and um, uh, the view of uh, our view of uh, analogical language and how uh, we can say things about God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I want to point out, too, um, that... The buck doesn't stop with Aquinas when we're talking about these things. Um, we're not defending Aquinas for the sake of Aquinas. And this isn't just about Aquinas either. Um, we want to show that it, this is talking about biblical orthodoxy in general. Aquinas mm-hmm. was identifying himself with what the church had been teaching up until that point on the doctrine of God. Um, and I think that has been the doctrine of God, especially, I think has been lost or greatly neglected in the evangelical world. Um, I think we see other issues taking prominence in the evangelical world. I think social issues are a big one right now with the way the culture is going, um, you know, critical race theory and um, COVID related things or, or government related things, I think have become so front and center that we have neglected um, the doctrine of God. And we're willing to lock arms with people who uh, may have the same views of social issues that we do, but have butchered views of God um, or less than orthodox views of God. And I think that shows where this central teaching has been put in our priority list. And we need to, uh, we need to recover that. I mean, how much, uh, how much more important should it be that we know the one we claim to worship, right? If we have God wrong, then how are we not worshiping a false god, right? So we have to be very careful in, in understanding these things. So that, that's why this is such an important topic. It's not just, you know, we, we think that the doctrine of God is cool and we can have a big head because we know all this knowledge about God. Um, it's really because it 
it's foundational to everything else that we believe. And if we get God wrong, it will affect other things in, um, in our belief system, what we believe about scripture, etc. And we have to be, uh, we have to be very careful when we approach God. And we need to make sure that we are speaking of God rightly. Um, and we see men today, you know, like we're going to be criticizing Jeff Johnson's book. We see Owen Strand. We see James White. We see these guys who are persisting in these teachings about um, about who God is. And not just on an, an ignorant level. We're not talking about people who are genuinely struggling with these things and maybe new to these things who are trying to understand them, but people who are persisting in these things and have been for a long time in light of the truth of scripture and a right doctrine of God. Um, so it's, it's critical that we, you really have to take a side um, when we're talking about the doctrine of God. Uh, doctrine of God is under attack in our own ranks, and we need to be able to stand firm on that. Um, and call people out. We need to not fear and and worry about what people are going to think. We need to stand up for God for those who are attacking that doctrine. And so I want that to kind of be the the overshadowing of uh, of our uh, thinking today as we go into our discussion. Um, and what the approach I want to take with this um, is we're going to give positive affirmation of these doctrines like natural theology, natural revelation, and of the doctrine of God, and then go into a criticism of Jeff's book. We thought it was important to, um, to lay out the positive and ensure that you can see the positive before you see the negative. I think that will help frame what, um, what your conclusions are. I think it will help to better approach the topic than just simply diving into the book and doing a criticism from there. Um, it, I think it's always better to look at uh, false doctrine in light of the truth. I think that's the best way um, to approach these things. So with that, um, I'll go ahead and hand over to Andrew um, as we start our topic on natural theology and natural revelation. Yep, of course. Um, yeah, and I'd like to echo that just a little bit while I'm pulling this up because um, we're not saying, of course, that those other issues like the social issues and the like are yes. not important. They, they absolutely are, especially things like critical race theory, which end up striking mm -hmm. at the heart of the gospel when they uh, undo the work that Christ has done to make out of two people one. But that shouldn't be like the only thing we focus on the doctrine of God. The end of creation itself is to worship and glorify God. And if we don't know who he is, we're, we're missing out on the most important thing that creation is accomplishing. It all ultimately does go back to that. So um, with that said, uh, I'm going to read these affirmations that we uh, discussed. And this is more to do with the sufficiency of scripture issue. Because some people on the other side have uh, accused those who have defended Aquinas as undermining the sufficiency of Scripture for, as saying that you need uh, either pagan philosophers or uh, erudite men like Aquinas to understand the Scriptures. And that's not what we affirm. That's not what we affirm at all. And like you said, the buck doesn't stop with Aquinas here. In many ways, I think the way this book is framed is a bit of a red herring because Aquinas didn't invent these doctrines, and neither did the natural theologians invent these doctrines. All these doctrines that are central to faith can be found in Scripture. So with that, that said, let me just read through these 
affirmations. Uh, we affirm that man has become to totally depraved by the fall and that this depravity extends to his mind. We affirm that his, this mental corruption renders his reason unfit to serve as a final authority by itself, and that because of the indwelling effects of sin, this is true for regenerate and unregenerate persons alike. We affirm that unconverted men are unable to give an account for logic. Nevertheless, we deny that this prevents them from ever correctly employing the principles of logic, or that logic has become altogether unusable. To deny such correct usage is nonsensical in a world where unbelievers are capable of building rocket ships, and it would constitute an affirmation of absolute depravity rather than total depravity. We affirm that it is man's use of reason rather than reason itself that is corrupted, and that if all the premises of a syllogism are true, then its conclusions necessarily follows. However, we also affirm that man in his corruption is not always able to identify flaws in a faulty syllogistic argument. We affirm that the weakness of our minds necessitates the sufficiency of scripture in teaching all doctrines that must be believed. We affirm that all arguments must be tested against scripture due to the infirmity of the human mind, because man is not utterly incapable of rational thought, and because some doctrines of scripture leave a deep footprint in God's creation providence, we should not be surprised that man is able to occasionally reason correctly from nature to a biblical doctrine. Scripture, though, must serve as our guardrails to ensure that we do not swerve and to follow. We affirm that such reasoning can only lead to a certain... To certain accurate conclusions about God as creator rather than God as redeemer, with the latter being exclusively discoverable in scripture. We deny that such natural knowledge constitutes knowing God any more than knowing certain prerogatives of the president's office would constitute knowing the president. Furthermore, any such natural knowledge of God is analogical, with his essence being utterly dissimilar to anything we know in the world. We can only know God through his son, Jesus Christ. We affirm that while man's reasoning is corrupted, it is not so hopelessly unusable that he cannot make basic deductions from Scripture. We affirm that the Bible teaches us to make such deductions and holds us accountable for missing applications of principles behind explicit teachings. Good and necessary consequences, if carefully exposited, are just as binding as explicit teaching. We deny that the necessity of the basic laws of logic and knowledge of language, which we must know before we approach Scripture, in any way jeopardizes the sufficiency of Scripture. God has caused such knowledge to be common and intuitive enough that there is no need for Scripture to instruct us in those basic principles besides the examples it gives us of it being lawful and necessary to use them. While good and necessary consequences may and do reveal doctrines that must be believed, we deny that advanced philosophical speculation is necessary to uncover essential doctrines. All necessary doctrines may be confessed with simplicity by the unlearned and babes in the faith. More advanced speculation is useful only to rationally articulate and defend those doctrines rather than establish new essential doctrines. Among doctrines that must be believed are the radical creator-creature distinction, the absolute independence of God, God's creation of all things, and the unity or simplicity of God. While no one can comprehend these doctrines, and not all believers may apprehend these with the same depth, they nevertheless can be understood to some measure by all and are clearly revealed in Scripture. These are so commonly accessible that even unbelievers, reasoning from the light of nature, are sometimes able to apprehend them. Other doctrines, such as the Trinity and the Gospel, are impossible to apprehend without special revelation. So, yeah, the gist of that is just that Scripture does teach everything that must be affirmed. And uh, while the works of men like Aquinas can be helpful in articulating them, we don't depend on them for these doctrines. So we don't want to confuse the two issues. They are indeed separate issues. Yeah, no, that, that's very true. And um, we need to also 
remember that creation itself is the medium by which that natural revelation is revealed. Hence the name natural revelation. And we see this in Psalm 19, 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And it's not just a, it's not a mere whisper that the, that nature is giving us about God. It says it declares. It's so obvious. And so uh, in your face, so to speak, um, in terms of who it's pointing to, it's pointing back to its creator, but it's shown in creation, the medium that God has uh, provided to declare himself. And I, I think this goes to the heart of that distinction between natural revelation and special revelation. Um, and that natural revelation can't provide us what special revelation can. A tree cannot provide us salvation. Only Christ can, which is through special revelation. And I would even argue that the mediation of, of Christ in the, in the hypostatic union is a form of special revelation where God is revealing himself in a very special way um, mm. to the world through his son in a way that he hadn't done before. But creation presents um, a generic knowledge about who God is, about his power and, and might. And uh, another place we see this famous passage, Romans 1, in your verse 18, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so they are without excuse. And then he goes on to talk about the suppression of that in idolatry, and making God like corruptible man, which is going to actually play into our discussion of the doctrine of God. But it's idolatry to make God like us. It, creation speaks of God as he truly is in a generic sense. And so to make him like us is to twist what nature is actually saying. So we have natural revelation that's speaking about God just in terms of raw facts. And then we have natural revelation, which is how we interpret those facts about uh, what creation reveals or natural theology. I mean, natural theology. Yes. Yep. Natural theology. Um, and Turretin, Francis Turretin talks about this in his institutes um, in question three on the first topic of theology. He says, our controversy here is with the Socinians who deny the existence of any such natural theology or knowledge of God and hold that uh, hold what may appear to be such has flowed partly from tradition handed down from Adam and partly from revelations made at different times. The Orthodox, on the contrary, uniformly teach that there is a natural theology, partly innate, derived from the book of conscience by means of common notions, and partly acquired from the book of creatures discursively. And I, I think he's using natural theology and revelation interchangeably, but um, the, the principle is there. And Turretin yeah. uses Romans 2.14 as a proof text that there is knowledge of God that is innate in us. Um, Romans 2.14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law... By nature, do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. And then he says, quote, We find in man a natural law written upon each one's conscience, excusing and accusing them in good and bad actions, which therefore necessarily implies the knowledge of God, the legislator, by whose authority it binds men to obedience and proposes rewards or punishments, end quote. So we do have this innate knowledge of God, we, but we still have to come to that knowledge with some kind of reasoning to be able to interpret it. That's why we have 
hermeneutics when we come to the scriptures. It's not immediately known as to what the scriptures say necessarily. We have to go to the scriptures and apply um, reason and principles to it to in order to understand it. And that's where biblical interpretation comes in. And obviously, for Christians, the Spirit helps us with that, but he uses uh, secondary causes to help us to understand these things. Yeah, um, It's a way of sanctifying ahead. the common means rather than creating something completely new, uh, which is something yes. actually Aquinas says. Like, it's not, uh, grace doesn't destroy nature, it perfects nature. And I, I believe that's a, a fairly uh, accurate assessment. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it, it's not one or the other. And I think mm -hmm. that's the issue we have to avoid. We can use natural theology and natural revelation to help us to understand who God is to some extent in tandem with and, and in subordination to special revelation. Yeah, John, exactly. did you want to add anything? Um, not at this point, although I will jump in here in a second, I think. <clears throat> the only one, last thing I just wanted to say real quick before we move on is what Turden says there is so essential that it's partly innate and uh, partly reasoned through discursively, because there are some um, on uh, the side of defending Aquinas who will make it that uh, natural theology is basically purely discursive, and they'll deny altogether any innate knowledge of God. They'll deny what Calvin calls the sensus divinitatis, uh, and we don't deny that because then men wouldn't be truth suppressors until they discursively learn through the world. The reality is, as Romans teaches us, we have the law written on our hearts as if by the finger of God, and by that we know right and wrong. Yet at the same time, we don't know everything we know uh, through natural revelation, through that innate knowledge. Scripture just as plainly teaches that we behold the heavens and the like, and they, they instruct us. And that's not an immediate knowledge, but we'll get into that more, I'm sure, later. Well, deal with that. That, that was sort of where I wanted to jump into. So um, discussing that, because Jeff makes the point that, uh, at least for him, natural revelation is immediate. And by immediate, he means instantaneous. There is no time gap. Um, and he contrasts this with uh, natural theology, which is based on reason, which uh, he, he denies. Um, and he uses Psalm 19, which Dan read as a proof text. But I want to go through and show that that doesn't actually teach what he's trying to get from it. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day, utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So to, to Jeff in this book, he's trying to say that this means that all knowledge being declared by the heavens is instantaneous, but it doesn't actually say that. Um, it could go either way, or it could be a combination of the, of the two, which ultimately we would hold to. Um, nature does declare to us some things instantaneously, and there are some things that we need reason um, to think through and come to an understanding of. Um, for example, uh, Job 12, uh, 7 through 9 backs this up. But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain it to you. Who among you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And that's sort of reminiscent of what uh, our Lord says in uh, Matthew 6, starting at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit of, to his stature? 
And so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, uh, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you of little, oh, you of little faith? So here Jesus is saying, look to nature and learn this truth about God. Um, so by example, we should, uh, we should desire to do the same. Um, and ultimately all theology that we, we do is, is based on reason. I know Jeff wouldn't say that, um, scripture immediately communicates all truth in it. Um, apart from thinking through things, um, he, he runs a seminary. Um, and clearly I, I imagine they have, uh, doctrine of God classes on there in there. So clearly there's a, a place for the application of thought and reason to revelation in order to gain more knowledge out of it. So uh, natural revelation gives us some things instantaneously, but there are other things that we have to, to think through and work at. And I would say that that at least is my personal experience. And I imagine it's uh, it's um, the same for us all. And that's the ironic thing. He actually makes natural revelation to be more supernatural than supernatural revelation. <laughs> because nobody would say that you learn all the truths of the Bible via like download as soon as you read it. You have to reason through these things, think about it, compare scripture with scripture. As scripture tells us to meditate on his law day and night. And apparently nature isn't like that. You just kind of download it all as soon as you, you look at it by some supernatural work. But at that point, it's not supernatural revelation anymore. It's, it's, I mean, it's not natural revelation anymore, rather. It's supernatural revelation. Yeah, and that... And God holds people accountable for what they see in creation, not just what is instantaneously revealed to them. Mm -hmm. I think the the parts that are instantaneous would be um, the scripture says that eternity has been put in the hearts of man. And we know God's law based on what's written on the heart uh, just by nature. Romans 2.14. Um, and so we're held accountable for that. But those who are creating idols and suppressing the truth outwardly like that are twisting the creation, uh, the homosexual behavior that's noted in Romans 1. That's a twisting of the created order, which is pointing back to how God has created it. So they're held accountable for what they see in creation, not what they know innately, in a, uh, primarily anyways. Um, so I, I think that's important um, to point out as we talk about these things. And these things are not, not easy. I think that uh, in terms of Jeff's position and when he goes, and now we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but um, when he goes this way, I think it's like he's taking a presuppositional apologetic too far. And we are presuppositionals, by the way. I'll, I'll just say that. Um, but I think you can take any view you can take too far uh, to a place that the author never intended. Van Til was not against natural revelation. He certainly was critical of it, no doubt. Um, but there were things that he said, like he was not against theistic proofs. I was just looking at this the other day in his book, The Defense of the Faith. He was explicitly talked about theistic proofs as being helpful but they were not to be um, they were not to be the end all be all. Right. They were they were not to um, to to bring us to God as he is minus special revelation. Um, but he was not against utilizing things in nature to help support our faith. Mm -hmm. um, and so there has to be this balance here from a biblical perspective on how God reveals himself to the world and how he uh how he has us to make himself known to us. Yeah. Um, and that really goes into 
you know, especially with the doctrine of God, that's going to play a big role. Yeah, as far as I know, the only big theologian who denied that you can get anything from like natural reasoning at all was Karl Barth. So it wasn't Van Til who said it. Van Til wrote against him. Um, and Van no, Til was I, accused of idealism too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we could rightfully call it a form of hyper-Vantilianism, just like some people claim they follow Calvin, but then they'll say what Calvin didn't, which is that the means of salvation aren't necessary and God just elects without the gospel and all that kind of stuff. We call them hyper-Calvinists. Right. I think there's a case you, there's a good case you can make that this is hyper-Vantilianism because they go much further than Van Til went on it. So we're trying to stick with orthodoxy, the, the, the classic stream of thought, not not taken in this new direction that's definitely not supported by scripture whatsoever yep that's exactly right all right now we're going to talk about um theology proper the doctrine of god again we're giving the positive affirmation of these doctrines before we dive into the negative of what jeff is saying about them so just to bring everybody back to where we are um so theology proper you know for those of you who are listening who may not uh may not understand what that is it's the doctrine of god it's a study of who god is the study of his nature, the being of God, who is God specifically. And you could argue that all of theology, whatever it is, is a uh, a discussion of God, but we're talking about the being and the nature of God specifically as distinct from other things in theology. Um, but the biblical and reformed doctrine of God confesses he's simple, meaning he's not composed of parts. He's a partless being. Right. And this is inseparably tied to him being immutable, meaning he does not change in any way. Now, if God was composed of parts, then he would be made up of something that is not himself. He would be dependent upon something that is not God in order to be God. And that's a problem because then that means that God is subservient to something um, that is greater than him. Right. Mm -hmm. And that runs into all kinds of issues in Scripture that speak of God not being bound to anything outside of himself. He is the supreme being. He is wholly different from us and creation as a whole. And because of that, um, we cannot talk in any way, or we should not be talking in any way that makes God to be subservient to something outside of himself. So the church has seen biblically that we speak of God as not being composed of parts, not being able to change and not changing at all not being in motion, um, because these all imply something that God is subservient to in order to be. And so this is this is very problematic, um, if not held. And this is ultimately what is deemed as act, what's called actus purus. And this means, and, and Richard Mueller has a really good definition in his book, um, Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms. Uh, he says, pure or perfect actualization or actuality most pure actuality, a term applied to God as the full actualized being, the only being not in potency. God is, in other words, absolutely perfect and the eternally perfect fulfillment of himself. And this ties back to God as being self-existent, right? He's pure act. He's not dependent on anything outside of himself. Um, therefore, there, there's no potentiality. God does not have any um, potentiality in it to be something he is not already. Um, because that would imply change. That would imply that God is not perfect because he has to become something that he is not already um, and then dependent upon whatever that thing is outside of himself to get that thing he doesn't have. So 
this is why you know having you know the this is where we start getting into this language where people get you know oh philosophy philosophy we see these things as as good and necessary consequences of scripture and that's going to be in our we'll talk about that more confessionally in our next topic but we see these things as being necessary consequences of what the clear teaching of scripture is um that god and this is not you know just deriving it and we're not deriving it from greek philosophy um, and this goes back to our discussion about um, natural theology, natural revelation, that there are those who men who can see uh, these aspects of God in creation and they're pointing them out. You know, Aristotle is saying, well, you know, it there has to be a, a being that has that is a first cause. He's an unmoved mover or you have infinite regressions, which is a logical absurdity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to understand that we can take some of these things um, that they have said, and ultimately seeing them as tying back to what Scripture teaches, and not pulling from a mere man, and that's a that's a mistake that opponents make um, at times. But this is who we believe God is. This is what we see biblically. Um, James Dolzell in his book All That Is in God, he gives a nice summary of this. It says, if God should be composed of parts of components that were prior to Him in being, He would be doubly dependent: first on the parts, and second on the composer. Of the parts, but God is absolute in being alone, the sufficient reason for Himself and all other things, and so cannot in any respect derive His being from another, because God cannot depend on what is not God in order to be God. Theologians traditionally insist that all that is in God is God, and that's where you end up with Actus Purus. You guys have anything to add before we move into the biblical discussion? Sure, just real quick that uh that language there, all that is in God is God is something uh, Jeff Johnson himself claims that he affirms among other things. Let me just get the, the page up. So I'm not, I'm not paraphrasing him here. Um, it, he says that the confessions of the 17th century are right. When they say God is without par- body parts or passions, divine aseity, simplicity and immutability are rooted in the scriptures particularly in God's name, I am who I am. For God to be independent, all that is in God must be God without separation or mutation. So he actually does use these phrases. And I'll be honest, the first time I read that in the book, it caused me to stop. But when you read the rest of the book, it's very clear he does not mean what Christians have historically meant when they affirm these things. And his his system as he presents it it collapses on itself if he tries to maintain those words. I, I was, I'm left saying that uh, for those who, who are in the know, I, I think he uses these phrases analogically rather than univocally when he's using classic orthodox terms about God. Um, but we'll get into that more as we actually get to the book itself. But that's all I have for now. You know, Andrew, that goes, someone just put in the in the chat here. Um, they said, does someone like James also go do far with Aquinas? Our confession affirms that God is without passions a passable, but he does not, he's not Im- immobile as an Aquinas, the mover Aristotle. And I think that mm-hmm. goes to your point of what did the Christians uh, historically, confessionally believe immutability to mean? I mean, not yeah. moving at all, well, um, well, including motion. Because really immutability, uh, this is all tied to the historic belief that you can't divide God. God is without parts. He's not made up of essence and accidents. And as we'll see by what Jeff Johnson proposes, he ends up basically saying that the accidents of God are what moves, but then his essence is immutable. 
but that involves dividing him into parts like the script, what, like the confession clearly denies. And honestly, I don't even know how he says he's without passions at all. Cause he'll straight up criticize, um, uh, us for saying that, Oh, God doesn't get angry when the sinner sins and, and does things like that. Of course, God is eternally hostile against those things, but he's, he's presenting it as he's responding to these things as they happen. And if that's not passions, I don't know what is. That's that's yeah. just the, basically the standard definition of what passions are. So, and like, having parts implies yeah. movement because that being has to be built upon those parts, moving towards perfection or whatever yeah. form you want to have. So, you you cannot have immutability without immobility. And yeah. we'll get to that uh, when we talk about his uh, his view of immobility. One more thing I want to say to the yep. commenter uh, real quick. Um, yep. If if God has if God has motion, then you have to ask when and where is he moving? Because if you say when, you're implying that he's exists and subsists in time. Uh, and if you if you say where, then you imply that he's in space and that he's somehow dependent on those things. And that's contrary to what Scripture said, uh, teaches. He's outside of time and space altogether. Um, I will say that Johnson has a uh, he tries to make a stab at that one in an article he wrote back in 2015 how it's like oh well god somehow is like the source of this time and he's just describing it as the measurement of movement but uh ultimately it gets into other really big problems which maybe we shouldn't deal with now but in any case the general principle holds if, if you think god moves you have to ask like when and how and where where is he moving so that's it's important to consider yep yep that's very true um, and we see this, you know, talk about immobility, immutability, and then subsequently uh, simplicity. Um, we see this from Scripture, right? Malachi three six, I think, is the the clearest affirmation of God's immutability. For I am the Lord; I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And God is grounding this statement not arbitrarily in a, in just I'm just not changing myself right now, but I can change. He's grounding this in His nature as unchangeable. I, the Lord, and, and this is the Tetragrammaton, this is I am, right? The self the self-existing one, the Ase one. I, the Lord, in my being, do not change. This is who I am, therefore I don't change, and therefore you're not consumed. So he's grounding this promise to not consume Israel in his nature. So it's his very nature to not change. Uh, Romans eleven thirty six: for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And in context, Paul actually talks about the knowledge of God, you know, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor, right? It's all along these same lines of that God is a supreme being. God is above creation, and, and there is nothing, nobody, zilch, nada, that teaches him anything. He just is. Um, and, and God is uh, su supremely sufficient for himself, and he is completely self-sufficient. And then in 36, for of him, through him, and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. So if all things, and Sam Renahan, I think, brought this out too in one of his books. If God, if if there is something that uh, is not from God, ultimately, then that means that there's something above God or somebody above God that uh, that thing must be from. Then this verse would not uh, hold true. So that God, Paul is saying that God is the supreme being and that all things flow from him. That means he he must be the first cause. He must be the supreme being and therefore act as purist, not able to change, not uh, not comp compose the parts, etc. 
or there would be something or somebody that is above him causing him to be that he would be dependent on. Um, and then we have Exodus three thirteen through 14. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. This is self-aseity, right? This is a, Or this is aseity, self-sufficiency, right? I am who I am. So God is not dependent on anything outside of himself to be. He just is. He just is. And finally, uh, Psalm 102, 26 through 27. I came across this passage when I was reading Stephen Charnock because he, in his um, in his attributes of God, and, and I can't remember the rest of the title, but he has a whole commentary on this as it relates to immutability. Um, but it says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, or he comments on the whole chapter rather, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So there's this contrast between the creature which changes, the creature which perishes, and then the God who does not. It's a, it's a nature contrast. It's the nature of the creature to change, to die, to perish, to move forward in time. It's a nature of the creator to remain the same and to be immutable. I thought this was a great passage to use because it, it brings out that comparison so well. And it talks specifically about the nature of creatures versus the nature of the creator. Yeah, it's a fact of superiority that God doesn't have to move to do anything that he does. He doesn't have to take time to reason what he would do in this situation or that. That's part of his glory, that he's above doing those things. It's a weakness of ours that we have to change over time, that we have to change our course and things uh, to take time to think ha- how we're going to accomplish things. That's a great weakness on our part. And yeah. God doesn't have that weakness. He just simply is what he is. He didn't have to think for a moment exactly how he's going to create creation. He didn't pour over a list of counterfactuals and then decide, well, this world would be better than that world and this one. He, he just creates in its perfect wisdom that just emanates straight from him. It's, it, it, and that's how glorious our God is. So rather than Amen. this being some, something that we see as like somehow hinders him, like, oh, he doesn't change and stuff because doesn't change good. It's like, well, change isn't good if you're perfect. Right. It's, it's a great <laughs> strength of his. Amen. Amen. I'd also uh, like to point out um, the Bible actually uses the language of motion to deny that God changes, which is relevant to our discussion here. James 1, uh, 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights with whom is no variable variableness, neither shadow of turning. So you have those, those two uh, phrases there uh, in um, sort of connected. There is no variableness, i.e. change, neither shadow of turning the turning there being a reference to motion. So the father doesn't have any change, nor is there even this, this motion that would indicate change. So uh, the Bible, uh, at least in James's mind, uh, the Bible is presenting us here that motion would imply change, and there's none of that in God. Amen, amen, yeah. Motion is denied in that passage. The shadow of turning, right? Turning is a is a motion, right? Exactly, and I, and I think um, this is referring to really the language being used of celestial bodies, right? Turning on their axes mm-hmm. or rotating, 
right? It's, yep. it's motion. That's what it's denying in God, not just changeable, uh, not just immutability, but actual motion. Um, and it's amazing how that's missed, but, um, but I digress. Um, but well, I, I, his, yeah, go oh, ahead. I was going to say, I, I'm indebted to Josh Summer for pointing that out because I yes, wasn't even I think thinking. That's, of- yeah. He, he did some, he did some good exegesis on that. Yep. Amen. All right. So we've looked at the biblical argument of theology proper. Now I just want to briefly look at the historical argument. You know, I think, um, History is important, and this goes back to, you know, Sola Scriptura. We're not against using other uh, other authorities outside of Scripture, but Scripture is the only infallible and ultimate rule of faith and practice. But confessions are helpful. They give us a concise um, view of Christian doctrine, um, and we hold to the 1689. Um, substantially, we, we hold to that confession. Um, but two one chapter 2, paragraph 1, uh, really lays out, in a general sense, who God is. And it uses some of this language that we're talking about here with simplicity and immutability. Uh, It says, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. There's aseity. Infinite in being and perfection. There's a denial of, of any change in God whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto who is immutable immense eternal incomprehensible almighty every way infinite most holy most wise most free most absolute so you see this language being used here immutability unchangeableness without body so he's not he's not part of the creation he's separate from creation he's the creator there's that creator creature distinction without body parts that's an affirmation of simplicity or passions that's impassibility which we won't get into a lot today but it's tied to those impassibility and immutability but the point is that we see this being confessed by the reformed you see this um i think you see this in the savoy and the westminster um and the baptists were simply trying to affirm that they were identifying with that reformed tradition ultimately biblical orthodox tradition um, in identifying who God was. And then I want to briefly just uh, look at some of the Summa from Aquinas and, and lay out what Aquinas's view, a very high level, was about God, because this will play a role into our discussion as we get to Jeff's book. Um, but some quotes from the Summa, uh, quote, he says, For there is neither composition nor quantitative parts in God, since he is not a body, nor composition of matter and form, nor does his nature differ from his suppositum, nor his essence from his existence. Neither is there in him composition of genus and difference, nor of subject and accident. Therefore, it is clear that God is no wise composite, but is altogether simple. So God is not composed of parts. That's essentially what he's saying. Um, another place. Therefore, that thing whose existence differs from its essence must have its existence caused by another. But this cannot be true of God because we will call what we call the first efficient cause. Therefore, it is impossible that God in his his existence should differ from his essence. God is not dependent upon anything outside of himself. Right. Um, So these are kind of the uh, the basis of where Aquinas is coming from as it relates to the doctrine of God. Um, I will point out when Aquinas talks about divine immutability in uh, the first part of the Summa in question four, the very first thing that he goes to when he rebuts the scholastic objections that he lays out 
is scripture, which yep. is ironic because Jeff makes very clear in this book that Aquinas did not use scripture, but that he simply was basing it off of philosophy. But, um, but Aquinas says, on the contrary, it is written, I am the Lord and I change not, Malachi 3.6. It's the very first thing that he says in response. Then he goes into his discussion of immutability and fleshing mm -hmm. that out. Um, so Aquinas, it, it's just very ironic that the very topic we're talking about here, and Jeff says is based upon philosophy, um, Aquinas went to scripture first. And there's yep. not a, there's really not a lot of interaction with the scriptures in this book. There's a lot of the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, but mm -hmm. there's not a lot of actual interaction with these texts um, at all. And, or, and that or any comes, I don't think he interacts with any of them. Yeah, no, and that comes out a lot. Um as he even describes Aquinas and his dealings with Aristotle, reality is Aquinas departed from Aristotle in many places. And why did he do it? Because there are areas where he disagreed with scripture very bluntly. Um, now, obviously, like I wouldn't say that, especially when it gets outside of the doctrine of God, that he was always as good at, at just using the Bible to trump what Aristotle or someone says, but he at least in principle accepted, accepted exactly just that. And he says it himself. Um, in his introduction, so this is um, Arto, uh, Article 8 of Part 1 of the Summa, he, he, which I have over here. Um, he says, hence sacred, doc sacred doctrine makes use also of the authority of philosophers in those questions in which they were able to know the truth by natural reason. As Paul quotes a saying of uh, Aratus, as some also of your own poets said, for we also are his offspring. Nevertheless, sacred doctrine makes use of these authorities as extrinsic and probable arguments but properly uses the authority of the canonical scriptures as an incontrovertible proof and the authority of the doctrines of the, of the church as one that may properly be used yet merely as probable uh, for our faith rests upon the revelation made to the apostles and prophets who wrote the canonical books and not on the revelations. If any such there are made to other doctors. Hence Augustine says only those books of scripture which are called canonical have I learned to hold in such honor as to believe their authors have not erred in any way in writing them, but other authors I so read as not to deem anything in their works to be true merely on account of their having so thought and written whatever may have been their holiness and learning. So that's Aquinas explicitly saying like, hey, the, the metric here is scripture. Uh, even the greatest philosophers or even the greatest men of church tradition can't trump what scripture says they're only arguments from probability but they're not necessarily true which i don't think jives well with the roman catholic view of the church today but this is the 13th century so <laughs> it's 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 ironic enough that at least on that issue definitely not all of them at least on that issue aquinas seems closer to us than he actually is to modern day catholics so that's yeah that's the, it's very it's very ironic isn't it and that actually leads us in into our next topic here on the the relationship between philosophy and in theology, right? Scripture ultimately trumps when we're talking about these things uh, it, or anything related to theological issues. Um, but we shouldn't see a false dichotomy between philosophy and theology. And I think that's what is done in this discussion by those on the opposing side. There's, It's either philosophy or sola scriptura. You can have both. And, and I would like to argue that um, just by going through a hermeneutical exercise, is a philosophical exercise. You can't escape it, um, no matter how hard you try. I mean, Britannica says that the that philosophy is quote the relational, the rational, abstract, and methodological consideration of reality as a whole, or fundamental dimensions of human existence and experience. 
isn't that what scripture is teaching the fundamentals mm -hmm. of life itself and existence right so when you're studying scripture you're studying philosophy you can't mm -hmm. get around it um ecclesiastes is probably the book that deals with um a christian philosophy the most explicitly um but i think that ecclesiastes 12 kind of sums up what uh proper philosophy should look like uh it says uh, starting in verse 9 of chapter 12 and moreover because the preacher was wise and still taught the people knowledge yes he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs the preacher sought to find acceptable words and what was written was upright words of truth the words of the wise are like goads and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd and further my son be admonished by these and of making many books there is no end and much study is wearisome to the flesh let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is philosophy. This is what we believe as Christians, that we're to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and that this undergirds all of our, our life, whatever that might be. So we are engaging in a philosophical exercise. So it's a false dichotomy to say it's either philosophy or theology mm -hmm. now that doesn't discount that there are pagan philosophies that we must reject that are contrary to scripture that's not what we're saying but the mm -hmm. concept of philosophy itself as if it's the boogeyman or the bad guy is not to be consistent with studying scripture or theology or to be a christian um so we have to be that's, careful about that's an important thing i i fear yeah. that many on the other side of uh, this discussion when they hear us use the word philosophy all they're thinking about is like First Corinthians one, going through how the the philosophers of this world are, are it, it's right. vain and useless, yeah. right? Yeah. And we would agree. Yeah. Um, yes. Philosophy devoid of God's revelation, apart, separated from God's revelation, built up just by man and of himself, is worthless. Amen. Um, yes. So what, when we say philosophy, we don't have a philosophy. We're not using that devoid of scripture or devoid of revelation. We're using that with scripture, with God's revelation to build, to build our theology. Yeah. Um, and that is the correct way to do it. Yeah. And that's a great yes. point because even when the philosophers said right things, they were never able, as I said in the affirmations, they're never, never able to know God did that. It's like, oh, I know he's like, has to be simple or something like that. That's not knowing God. You can only right. know God through Jesus Christ. That actually just added to their condemnation before God because they had greater natural light and yet they were still living in sin and darkness. So no, and and also without the constraints of scripture, all of them to a man went off in a bad direction somewhere or another. It was only to, able to take them so far, as Calvin says, it's like a flash of lightning in the dark, and then they're left bumbling over. Uh, just like Aristotle, where he he eventually went to the conclusion, like, oh, God's got to be completely disinterested in the world altogether. And then Plato and especially the Neoplatonists end up with some kind of like pantheistic hierarchy of of beings. Uh, in the like where God's just at the peak of the ladder and like, so all natural theology without the guardrail of scripture will always go to error. That's not to say that they, everything that they say is false, right? Because again, they, they're, it's Even not absolute depravity. Yep. It's not absolute depravity. It's total depravity, right? It's not that your logic is completely unusable. It's that it's all corrupted. So you'll, but you can still do basic reasons, especially more basic reasonings that where you don't have to extrapolate too far to reach a conclusion. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, yeah, that's, uh, uh, I'm thankful for that distinction you made, Sean, because that's, that is very important. Yep. 
Uh, before you move on, I do actually want to highlight something that uh, Aquinas actually brought up uh, when Andrew was reading the Summa there. Uh, it's actually biblical, explicitly biblical, to um, look at the pagan philosophers and say, oh, you, you did get this aspect right. Because uh, part of Jeff's book, um, he, he really harps on the fact that Aristotle was a pagan philosopher, and thus why is Aquinas trying to baptize him, essentially? Why is Aquinas trying to, to go to him? to get any sorts of knowledge. But uh, we see the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill when re uh, reasoning with the Greeks there, uh, tell them, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And um, he's quoting uh, here from Artis, and Artis in context is talking about Zeus. So here we have a, a pagan uh, uh, poet who clearly doesn't have any... Or, He's not talking about the true God. We know this, but he's got an aspect of it right. And Paul is using that to demonstrate that uh, the uh, the Athenians know who this God is, at least it's in some sense. Uh, so it is perfectly appropriate for us to point to Aristotle and, and be like, well, he got this aspect of it wrong, but this aspect of it is correct and his reasoning is correct, so we should we should mm -hmm. use that in our articulation, assuming it's yeah. helpful to do so. And, and whenever they are wrong, it's ultimately because they made a blunder in reason somewhere, because of the corruptness of their right. mind. So if they were perfectly consistent in their reasoning, they wouldn't have made their mistakes. So we shouldn't shun reason in that way, and be like, oh, you can't know anything about God in that way. It's like, well, it's unreliable if you don't have the final authority of Scripture because of the corruption of your mind, but in theory, and sometimes actually, reason can like lead you to some truths, not salvation, but it can lead you to some basic truths that are just common to, to God's general revelation. Yep. And I think we see that very clearly in our confession. And, and you know, I'm going to I'm going to plug for the 1689. I think that it articulates this concept much better than the Savoy and the Westminster did. But it says in chapter 1, paragraph 6, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith will say um, is either expressly set down by Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, and that's basically what the Savoy says. But I think that this concept of necessarily contained in the Scriptures is important because um, it it removes any notion that what we're saying by implication is not taught in the text. It's not separate and distinct from the text in terms of the meaning and what it's trying to capture. It is simply scripture in that it's, it's meaning and what it's communicating. So when we say God is simple, the Bible doesn't say that expressly. It doesn't say that God is, not, is uh, heartless, but we deduce that from these clear and expressed teachings, and therefore we say it's in the Holy Scriptures by implication. Yep. And I think that is very important to remember. And that really avoids us from, um, from falling into the trap of saying that what we're saying is just from Greek philosophers. You're pulling that from them and imposing that in the text. Um, and like what Andrew and Sean just said, um, it's that we're seeing that what they're saying is correct because the scriptures necessarily go there. And yep. we're just saying, yes, you guys are saying the correct thing. We're not we're not taking from you as if it's a novel idea being imposed back to scripture that doesn't exist there. We're just simply saying what you're saying, even in your fallible thought um, to some, you know, in 
in, to some extent, um, we're saying that that is consistent with what is necessarily contained in the scriptures. And mm -hmm. sometimes those pagan philosophers can help us to uh, better formulate that, but they're not teaching anything new when what they're saying is consistent with the necessary consequences of the express words of God. That is how you get around. I wouldn't say get around, but that's how uh, you look at this consistently with regard to uh, taking, you know, are we taking thoughts from pagan philosophers and imposing it? Or are we just saying that they're being consistent with what is already there? The mm -hmm. latter is what we're confessing. And that's what our confession explicitly is teaching when it talks about this necessary containment in the scriptures uh, in terms of those concepts that are there. So I wanted to point that out. I think that is lost on the other side when they're talking about philosophy. It's usually, um, you know, you're just borrowing from pagan philosophers. You're just pulling pagan philosophy and imposing that onto the text. Um, well, your own confession, because some of these guys are Reformed Baptists, it says that it's necessarily contained in there if it's if it follows necessarily from the express uh, teachings. It's not something that we're pulling from Greek philosophy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jeff Johnson himself is willing to say that God is simple. And again, that phrase isn't yeah. contained in Scripture. So it's a logical deduction from Scripture. And he has to admit, Aristotle said God was simple. So what's it, What's the fundamental difference between what Aquinas is doing and what Jeff Johnson's doing? Is it just because uh, Aquinas points out that Aristotle said it? So is it the biblical way to do it is just say what some aspect of what Aristotle said and then pretend he didn't say it? It's a genetic fallacy. Uh, it's it's yeah. I mean, you have to ask that because that's a big part of this book. Like, okay, like Aquinas bad, uh, Aristotle because Aristotle's bad. Uh, therefore, the conclusion of biblical orthodoxy, which was believed before any of those guys, is is bad. So it's it just doesn't follow. Well, mm -hmm. Jeff tries to make the argument in here that essentially uh, Aquinas saw Aristotle immediately assumed he was true and then use that as an interpretive grid, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to what we, we would say we're doing. But it's, it's very odd. He'll use uh, phrases like, oh, he attempted to baptize Aristotle, uh, but ultimately didn't. And then he'll complain that, you know, Aristotle's actually more consistent about his uh, philosophy, whereas Aquinas is only accepting certain parts. And I, I would go to just say that he's not, Aquinas is not trying to baptize Aristotle. The fact that he's not accepting Aristotle hook, line, and sinker and just saying, oh, this is correct and this is correct mm -hmm. indicates that he's doing exactly what Paul was doing at the Areopagus, saying, this is correct. This logic is correct. I'm going to use that in my understanding of God. Uh, he's not trying to baptize him in his entirety. I think that's a mistaken... Um, He's, he's mistaken in exactly what uh, Aquinas is doing there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I want to read from Turretin real quick on this, because I think he, I won't read the whole passage, but there's some, there's some parts that he talks about in terms of um, the implications of Scripture. And this is from the Institutes again. It says, quote, Are the doctrines of faith and practice to be proved only by the express word of God? May they not also be legitimately proved by consequences drawn from Scripture? We affirm the latter. This question owes its rise to the new method of disputing peculiar uh, peculiar to the jugglers and mountebanks among the papists who, in order to evade with greater ease the arguments by which we invincibly establish from Scripture our opinion and confuted their errors, suppose that they had no better way of getting out of the difficulty than by compelling us to prove that all our doctrines 
are contained in so many words in scripture, all use of consequences being rejected. So the papers were the ones who were uh, kind of the biblicists here, which is kind of funny, um, according to Turretin. And then he even goes on to talk about Arius. And Arius used this, this uh, understanding as well when he was talking with the whole Arian controversy. Uh, so Arius asks, why is the word of which never, neither the prophets nor the apostles make mention added to the apostolic face? And they're, and they're talking about like homoousios um, in that whole controversy. So Arius was using the same argument. Hey, you know, homoousios, the same substance stuff, that's not in the Bible. I don't see that anywhere. Why in the world are you trying to impose that back on the text? Um, and this was a heretic, remember. Um, and so, but Nicaea was saying, no, they essentially were taking the good and necessary consequence from the scriptures and saying that this has to be in order for the express passages to make any sense and to be true. Um, and Arius was challenging that. Um, but it's just kind of ironic that those who want to go a biblicist route, and what we mean by biblicism is this, like what we said, that economy between philosophy and, and uh, in scripture, um, they're falling in the steps of Arius in, in this in this minute respect. So we have to be careful about that. Um, we don't get the word Trinity in the Bible, but we use that all the time. Theology is a word that's not in the Bible. We use that all the time. There's tons of things that are not expressly laid out in the scriptures that we utilize all the time, but we would not deny because we see them as necessarily following the express passages. So it, it's kind of, it's a very inconsistent um, standard to hold if you take that that form of biblicism. Yeah, and I, I do want to make that absolutely clear because, I, again, I fear that uh, when the other side listens to us, they're not hearing, we're, we're not using the word the same way. When we say yeah. biblicist, we're, we're referring to the type of person that says, oh, Trinity, I don't see that in the Bible, therefore it's not true. It's like, okay, the word isn't there, but the concept is there. Mm -hmm. uh, based on how I've seen people use the word biblicist, I think they're, they're literally uh, saying it to mean sola scriptura, right? So when they hear us say, oh, we're not biblicists, they're hearing us say, oh, we don't believe in sola scriptura. But that's not what we mean. We're saying that it doesn't necessarily need to be explicitly in the Bible, but implicitly through reason we attain that, and that is cor uh, correct, and that should be used um, to judge um, whether or not somebody um, is holding to proper theology or not, especially in the case of uh, Arius, right? Because homoousius, same substance, is not a phrase that occurs in the Bible. And yet we're willing to divide with Arians over this. Why? Because we ultimately think that is a, a truth about um, the relation or um, who the son is in uh, connection with who the father is. They are the same substance. And um, we, we want to... We want to use that as a guardrail to prevent um, somebody from denying the deity of Christ, because Arius would claim that Christ was divine, that he was that he was God, but would also say that he was a created being. So the uh, the at the Council of Nicaea, they came up with the language of Homoousius because that would prevent the Arians from being able to say it and play all these these word games they had going on, trying to make themselves sound orthodox when they really weren't. And I've seen a lot of people on the other side basically um, make the accusation, you're, you're enforcing on our conscience something, basically natural theology, something that like the Bible doesn't talk about at all. And we're, that's not what we're trying to do at all. You might still think that we're doing it, but that is not what we're trying to do at all. We're trying to um, 
even if necessarily the explicit language isn't there in the scriptures, we think this follows from the scriptures. And if you're denying it, then we're saying you're denying a biblical truth that yep. we're trying to present that biblical truth for you to follow, not some truth devoid of any scriptural reasoning whatsoever. Uh, and a biblical truth, I would add, that has been recognized by the church for literally 1900 years, uh, more or less. Like, that's this isn't like, oh, we just made this new biblical discovery, uh, just us three, and we're like, yeah, you. You need to believe this now. Although, I mean, if it is in Scripture, it's in Scripture, regardless of how few people recognize it. But, like, in this case, this is basic. This is basic orthodoxy. People at Nicaea would have affirmed this. People uh, like Boethius, Augustine, the whole nine yards. Aquinas didn't make this up. Uh, so that's very important to keep reinforcing. Um, and with that, I guess it's about time for the review, right, brothers? <laughs> now that we're an hour. minutes for the review. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, yeah. It, it's important. And we and we were kind of talking about this when we did when we were preparing for this. This is going to be a long episode. <laughs> yeah. But these topics are not things we can breeze through, not things that you can just, you know, say, OK, here's a few catchphrases, then be on your way. You have to flush it out. We have to be very clear on what we mean by these things. And yes. it requires study. It requires reading. It requires you to really seep your mind into these things. And it's not a, an exercise for the sake of exercise. We're trying to understand ultimately who God is, right? And make sure that we're communicating that accurately. Yes, and for same. Jeff, we're we're talking about someone who really has been teaching um, issues with divine uh, immobility, as he calls it, um, for probably about 10 years. You know, Andrew mentioned the article, uh, Simplicity and Trinity, that was from the Reformed Baptist blog, which was an excerpt from a book he's published called The Absurdity of Unbelief, which was a an apologetic work. But this is nothing new for Jeff in terms of the doctrine of God. He's really just, I think, fleshing out what has been there all along and what he alluded to or talked about briefly in his book, um, The Absurdity of Unbelief and on that blog. So this is this is someone who's not uh, coming to this fresh out of the gate, you know, uh, like a cage stage Calvinist who's just getting these things and then, you know, learning as he goes and, and having to be. Correct. This this has sat for a long time for Jeff and the fact that he wrote this book, this obviously wasn't written overnight. The other book wasn't written overnight. Um, it's been sitting a long time. And I think that it's been sitting his views have been sitting unchecked, at least on a large extent. I didn't know about any of this stuff until recently about Jeff's view. Um, it, so I, I think he's just flown under the radar. And I think that speaks a lot to, again, the priorities of the evangelical world. We're, we're more concerned about other things, which are not which are important things, but more concerned about those things than, or you know, core orthodoxy. When we're talking about this is not a secondary issue, as someone we know has asserted. Um, this is not a secondary issue, but this is a core issue. Understanding who God is undergirds everything else that we believe. Um, so we cannot. He's he's just gone on check too long, and we we need to call him out for it. Um, but we're going to we're going to follow the same format that we did. So we affirmed, you know, we talk about natural theology, philosophy, doctrine of God. We're going to follow that format as we go through our discussion of Jeff's book. We're going to quote from his book and discuss um, some of those quotes, discuss the concepts there. And hopefully that's helpful. But that you have all that backdrop of the positive aspects of that theology, I think, will help you as we discuss um, the other things Jeff was saying. And we'll probably repeat ourselves a lot as we go through. But 
Hopefully this is helpful. So the first topic that Jeff talks about in his book is natural theology and revelation. He spends, oh, I think at least two chapters on this. Uh, natural theology's dilemma, um, which is the first natural theology of Aristotle, uh, mixing philosophy and theology. So he spends quite a bit of time on, um, on that issue. Um, but I want to quote from pages 10 and 11. Here he talks about natural revelation and, and theology. He says, quote, yet proving the biblical validity of natural revelation does not establish the biblical validity of natural theology, philosophy. Natural theology is the philosophy of religion, and the philosophy of religion is limited to what can be known about God through reason in our empirical senses. Natural revelation, on the other hand, comes from the heavenly wisdom of an infallible God, while natural theology, like all forms of philosophy, comes from the worldly wisdom of fallible men, end quote. Sean, Andrew, you want to comment on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think this ties back to what we were talking about before. Um, the idea that, because um, his, his idea that it brings back is that all natural revelation is immediate. And again, I, I call those mm -hmm. hypervantilianism. This isn't, yep. this is, this isn't like a historic view here. And it's not, it's certainly not a biblical view. Um, so he, he confused. So then he has to say, therefore, that any reasoned thought about uh, God from creation has to, by nature, be wrong, and 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 has to be rejected. Even though, um, embarrassingly, I guess that some people occasionally get things right, like Aristotle uh, about uh, simplicity of God. It, he has to at least acknowledge that to some extent. So I don't know how he meshes those two together because clearly he did get some things right regardless of what you view you take. But, but that is kind of a core issue of his book is this, this, this misunderstanding of, um, of the way natural revelation comes to us. And, and again, he makes it like more supernatural than supernatural revelation. Mm. Yep. And, and, you know, talking about instantaneous, that's on page 14. He says, quote, the fourth attribute of natural revelation is its instantaneousness. There are no time lapse between God speaking and man understanding what God has spoken. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this would remove all mediatory, um, mediatory tools or aspects mm -hmm. to reveal God to us. Um, so with regards to creation, that would remove creation at the end of the day. Now, he'll want to say that, you know, it, nature does reveal God instantaneously, but that's still some kind of medium that you have to put between God and the creature. And it's not instantaneous because you have to see creation and process that before um, that revelation comes to you. So yes. you still have to see, perceive with the senses, perceive with your eyes. You see the tree, you see God, but you have to see it first because it's seen in nature. And, um, and the so first kind of skips over that medium. And the phrase he uses over and over again is immediacy. Like he's like, oh, it's immediate. Yeah, immediate. Whether he's using that like in the traditional sense, I don't know. You would think so because he's talking about philosophy. Um, but but immediate literally means without medium. So it's as if you're seeing the stars, but it's not even coming to you through your sight. It's like, a, I mean, we do have a category for this in some instances with supernatural revelation when you see the gospel and the spirit immediately through the word speaks to your heart. I mean, it still comes to you through that medium, but there's like an immediate speaking to by the spirit on account of hearing the word. Um, but I, I certainly would not want to say that like 
the spirit gives you an immediate impression of what you get through natural uh, revelation. I, that's just so far beyond the bounds of anything scripture suggests. Um, and it, again, it's a confusion too between um, ultimately ontology and epistemology because uh, revelation is ontology, but theology is epistemology. In other words, revelation is the content, uh, but theology is our knowing of the content and he collapses them and makes them one and the same thing. So yeah, it's a very strange yeah, basically. view. Yep. Yep. And then and, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I want to point out because he says that, um, where is it? Uh, there is no time lapse between God speaking and man understand, understanding what God has spoken. We have a, another source of, of God speaking. And I know I, I brought this up already, but scripture is, is God speaking, right? And there are truths in here that you uh, can apprehend almost immediately or immediately, right? And uh, immediately in the sense of instantaneously. The moment you're done reading it, you've, you've understood what's being said. But we all know that in here, we've gone to passages in the Bible uh, that we've read dozens of times and then all of a sudden realized, oh, wait, this is communicating something to me that I didn't even realize before, right? And then you start thinking about things and you start start learning things. So it's the same way with natural revelation. Yes, there are absolutely things that are um, instantaneously understood by man, but there's also things that we can learn and reason through, and that will tell us things about God. Not that those are they're, they're new, completely new, but they're helping us to articulate things that we already know about God. Yep, that's exactly right. You still have to you have to throw hermeneutics out the window at that point because that's logical reasoning getting back to God somehow. So yeah, it, it, it's really an, it's really a self defeating argument. And then he'll go on to talk about how science can't reveal the metaphysical because they're not the same thing. Um, this was on pages, I think forty six. He talks page forty six about this, um, which is interesting because he makes it very clear that nature does reveal God. So if I study a plant, I can't understand the metaphysical. But if I look at nature somehow, I can instantaneously uh, know who God is. So there's yeah. there's these inconsistencies in terms of his own view of natural uh, revelation um, that and, don't seem to comport on the very standard that they're standing on. And that's the ironic part. I think his view that God needs motion ultimately, where does it come from? It doesn't come from scripture. Nowhere in scripture does it say that God needs motion to create like he needs to move from one state to another um through an act of the will to to create that's that's entirely just him looking at nature i believe and just saying like oh like when we when we do stuff it requires motion so like so he's doing exactly what he's criticizing uh some philosophers of doing from he's like, agreeing oh, with reasoning. aristotle <laughs> yeah yeah you're yeah because that's is what aristotle says right he says like he oh the, the efficient cause needs motion in order to create something, which is why Aristotle ultimately denies that God is the efficient cause because he was reasoning from nature too much and applying things he didn't have warrant to say. God doesn't need motion to, to create. Uh, God can do it through the eternal act of his will without any change in him. And that's what he didn't understand. But apparently Jeff Johnson doesn't understand that either because like, oh, he needs to move in order to, to do stuff. So I was like, where'd you get that from? You didn't get that. From yeah. Scripture. And he'll admit that, you know, there are similarities between the God, of, you know, God of Aristotle and the God of the Bible um, or apparent similarities or whatever. Um, but he won't uh, allow us to do that same thing. You know, he's willing to take similarities where they um, actually, you know, to some extent where they actually overlap with scripture 
Um, but then when we try to do that, we're not allowed to do that. And he talks about this on page 114. Uh, he says, quote, of course, truth is truth wherever it's found. The Bible is not the only source of truth. In fact, discovered in the secular world, such as in science or history, will be congruent with the truths revealed in the Bible. But this is not the issue. The issue is whether the scope of philosophy, philosophical science derived by human reason, can reach a proper knowledge of God. Is philosophy without the aid of revelation even capable of leading rational people to the same God of natural and supernatural revelation? But then he'll go on later on in the book to talk about how philosophy is not a handmaid into theology. So he can't even seem to make up his mind on, on what his view of philosophy is. But he's allowed to do this. He's allowed to... Um, to say this, but when we say it, somehow we're following philosophy and natural theology and not scripture. And, and again, I, I think that's confusing the categories when he says yep. like, oh, philosophy can't lead to the God of scripture. And I would say, amen, it can't. You can only know him through Jesus Christ, but you can know yeah. certain things about, hey, there's a creator. I can see yeah. his creative power in the world and I can reason to myself, well, if he is independent of all that, he can't be composed of parts and stuff like that. That's not knowing God. And, and as I said in the affirmations, our knowledge of God that way is all analogical. These are like yeah. basically reasoning through his effects to, to try to understand him. Like, of course, when we, we do in a sense predicate like goodness and righteousness of his essence himself because it's the source of those things. But as God is in himself, like the, our language, our mode of signification is not the same at all. God has in himself no similarities with anything we know he's 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 the source of all goodness he's the source of all righteousness and because he's the source we can say yes he is goodness itself he is that standard of goodness he is that standard of righteousness and many other things um and and i do want to give a little bit of leeway because some classical uh theologians will have different ways of articulating just what uh, analogical knowledge means but that's one way of understanding it um and we sternly all have to acknowledge there's no similarities in the substance but uh, the, my, my point here is you're not knowing God as he is in himself by reasoning from creation. You're knowing right. things about, hey, there's a God and he's all good and he's, and he's all these things. But you, you can't know him. No man has seen him nor can see him through, except through his only begotten son who has declared him. That's the only way. And, no, and we're not saying that at all. So, it's, it, again, it's confusing categories when, when he's he's acting like, oh, we are saying you can know God through uh, through philosophy. No, that's that's not what we're saying. No, no. Even even when we say that God is simple and without parts, that is true about God. But that's still not capturing the entirety of what it of what that means in God, because he's so other than us. We're still using human language to try and communicate that in our feeble little minds. But we're still saying something true about God. But it's not univocal. Yes. Um, even that itself is analogical. Um, mm -hmm. And that's that's really another issue, I think, when we're talking about the doctrine of God. You know, as we get into talking, moving on to Jeff's view of God, you know, which is really the, the central issue. Uh, okay. Before before you go yeah. on, I did actually want to go back to page 46 here oh, um, sure. in, his, in his book and uh, yep, read yep. from it because I think it's uh, important. Um, but does not the God of the Bible transcend nature by surpassing the reach of the empirical senses? Who is to say that the rules of physics and laws of motion apply to God as they do to us? Who is to say that the physical realm has anything in common with metaphysical the metaphysical realm? Because physics and metaphysics are not the same thing, how can we trust physics to say anything true about metaphysical realities? 
So here he's making the point that um, for natural theology, in order to understand the metaphysical, you at least have to have some sort of physical, uh, some sort of understanding of the physical. But um, I would say that that's exactly what he's doing, because, again, he's talking about there being motion in God. But in a timeless, spaceless being, how can you have motion in the physical sense? You'd have to be speaking of it in the metaphysical sense. But he's just said that why should we assume that there's any uh, metaphysical relationship to the physical? And you'll see this throughout the book where he, he, as, as we've already brought up, he's making claims that uh, the classical theists are not allowed to do philosophy or to do metaphysics or to, to do all the, these things. And yet he does them uh, himself. And ultimately, I, I know this is somewhat loaded language, but I'd say that he's actually borrowing from our worldview to make some of his arguments here, that he's using uh, philosophy and um, natural theology, especially when attacking um, Aquinas' use of Aristotle saying, no, Aristotle was correct uh, in uh, saying that uh, God only was thinking of himself. And he goes through, explains the reasons. He doesn't go to scripture to prove that. He, he reasons, phil reasons philosophically about that. So ultimately, I think a major portion of the book is self-contradictory. Yeah, it's very ironic, isn't it? It's, you know, philosophy is bad, but I'm going to use philosophical arguments primarily to, to prove why philosophy is bad. <laughs> at least natural theology yeah it's it's very self-defeating and that's what i was saying like there's a lot of the bible says the bible certs or whatever um but there's really no exegesis not really i mean there's some texts that are quoted or that are dealt with but not uh there's none of the texts that we're dealing with here there's no quotation of malachi 3 6 and why mm -hmm. that doesn't comport with uh what we're saying there's no engagement with that Mm -hmm. um it, it's all on the basis of of philosophical language which yeah. is yeah it's very self-defeating it's asserted that the things um in the bible require a god who is able to self-move but it's not demonstrated exegetically it's demonstrated mm -hmm. philosophically which is yes self-contradictory yep and he'll even say um you know on page five he says quote thomas added to God's simple and immutable nature by an additional attribute not taught in, in the scriptures, divine immobility. So he thinks that immobility is not this is not the same thing as immutability. He thinks it's in addition, something that Aquinas introduced in his own uh, in his own thought, which is just um, not so true. Again, it's just yeah. Just, no, no, again, no. read read Boethius and the earlier guy. Aquinas did not introduce those things at all. That that's just acknowledging divine simplicity which is to say god's not made up of essence and accidents that's if if you believe that god isn't made up of essence and accidents you can't have divine mobility as jeff johnson defines it yep yep and he'll go on to to talk about how aquinas was um you know found making the foundation of his arguments really aristotle page 54 55 uh, though Aquinas claims to have prioritized the scriptures, which he viewed as infallible, over the writings of Aristotle, which he viewed as fallible, the cornerstone of Aquinas' doctrine of God is the cosmological argument of Aristotle that is based on empiricism. And we've already demonstrated that Aquinas did use scripture first when talking about divine immobility, um, which Jeff does not do in his book, mm -hmm. ironically. So again, it, it's not con not consistent on his own standard um, and really misrepresenting Aquinas uh, in that realm aquinas had i think had a higher use of scripture than than jeff did in his book 
Um, in Again, harping on immobility, page 114, uh, he says, quote, the fatal flaw of the philo philosophical theology of Thomas Aquinas is the foundation of his natural theology, divine immobility, the idea that God cannot uh, move himself. And he qualifies that a little bit here with a footnote. He says, to be more precise, I would say that the fatal flaw lies in Aquinas' unbiblical commitment that all knowledge begins and is confined to sense experience. But Jeff is talking about this idea of immobility. Um, and why, I guess we can talk about why is it that we can't ascribe motion to God. Um, he seems to create this dichotomy between um, immutability, the ability or, or not, or changelessness, I should say, and motion as if they're not tied to one another. Um, do you guys want to uh, comment on that? Uh, yeah, uh, that's, I kind of briefly alluded to it when I say you need accidents uh, with your essence, at least for his articulation, because, uh, and I think this actually even comes out even clearer in his 2015 article than even in the book. But basically what he does is he says that the nature of God, like his essence, that doesn't change and that doesn't even move. Uh, what, because when he talks about motion, he's really talking about like exertions of the will, like at a particular point in time. And he does affirm time in God, but through through his, I guess, non-essence. Um, but the reason why this is a problem is because he has already confessed that all that is in God is God. So we have to ask, are these accidents in God or are they outside of God? If the accidents are in God, then they just are God because he confessed all that is in God is God. So if they're in God, they're God. But if he goes from one act of the will to another act of the will, does God appear and disappear with the act? Because that would be what it would make it sound. If you try to hold on to that phrase, all that is in God is God. Then as soon as you have a new act of the will, uh, you've added God in his entirety because every part of him is God. Um, and then when it's removed, God disappears. So obviously that can't be the case. Uh, so then what you have to end up saying is that, well, really just all that is in God's essence is God. And, and that's it. In which case, um, his accents are outside of God proper and God is dependent on things outside of him to do things and to will. And you know where this becomes worst of all is because he will assert in his book that, um, and I believe other places too, that the members of the Trinity have their own unique self-consciousness. Yes. Each of them. He will explicitly it, say that. And, and, but he also says that each of the persons is fully God. But you're going to be left with a contradiction that way because if the self-consciousness of the Son isn't the self-consciousness of the Father, but God is fully – God the Father is fully God – but doesn't have the self-consciousness of the son. That means either the self-consciousness of the son is outside of God or else you, you just have a, a contradiction. And at that point, if you really push that to its conclusion, you have the self-consciousness of the person's not being God himself. And that's obviously just completely heretical. And I don't think he would make a statement like that, but this is the importance of thinking through these things. Like this yes. is important of trying to be consistent with our, uh, uh, with our logic and everything else when it comes to these topics. Cause if you make these statements like that, if you make these statements that the church hasn't believed for uh, and hammered out for 2000 years, like problems like these emerge, there's a reason why we've 
safeguarded this language for so long is because this is a delicate topic and one diversion mm. from the truth one way or the other logically leads you to heresy and that's absolutely heresy and it's more akin to a a, a soft tritheism at that point where it's like each of the persons just have like the common characteristics of the god class or the god species and they're just and they're just members of it they're just persons within the species and they're it, if this is not the God of the Bible, which, which says, above all, hear, O Israel, your Lord, your God, is one Lord. He's one, and he's not, he's not divided that way. And again, Scripture presents the will of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as totally one. Uh, he, it says that the Son can't do anything unless he sees the, the Father doing it. And then he says of the Spirit that he only does and he only says what he hears uh, from the Father and the Son. Um, so it's... It's completely against Christian Orthodox and biblical teaching. Another issue is for for Jeff to resolve the issue of, well, how can you have an unmoved or a, a, a universe of motion and an unmoved mover? What he essentially said is says is God is immobile in his essence, but um, the relations of the Trinity between the Trinity, there's there's motion, and that's how you have motion and non-motion at the same time and it solves the apparent dilemma that uh, aristotle had uh that god is, is static essentially uh but ultimately i don't think this actually solves his issue if you think it is an issue um because essentially what you have is the immobile essence of god creating motion so how is that not different than um Aquinas's articulation of the unmoved mover. Obviously, I get it. Uh, there's a difference between whether it's uh, in between the members of the Trinity or outside of, of God, but it's the same issue that you run into, that you have non-motion producing motion. And at least we're consistent in saying, yes, the unmoved God can produce motion. There's no issue with that. But Jeff does have an issue with that. But his articulation still leaves that issue open where the unmoved essence of God is still producing this motion. So you, he believes that uh, motion can come from non-motion. Yep. You still have an unmoved mover. Yes. It's yep. just he's put it in a different spot than the uh, than our articulation of where that would be. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I want to clarify, too, when we're talking about God not moving, we're talking about motion in the sense of what we deem motion to be. We're not... Um, Josh Sommer put out an episode at earlier this week about um you know there is when we're talking about actus purus it's pure act god is god is uh, i guess the perfection of motion in the sense he's not moving to anything new but he is just simply the full realization of all of his acts um so when we're talking about motion and god we're talking about uh, motion that is creaturely motion that is not being ascribed to god um so i want to make that distinction god is not static god is not sitting up there with not having any mindset of the universe or or anything of that nature, but it's a fullness of it, the real the full realization of uh, of motion being an actus purus, but not motion in the sense that we realize it going from potential to actuality. We must deny that of God. Um, so I just want to point that out. But these it, when when Jeff talks about actual movement in God, he explicitly says um, it's ad intra. And that's that I think is is more scary because he he's clarifying what he means by that. He's not saying, well, I just believe that that 
something is moving God on the outside or no, he's saying that this is who God is in his being, in his essence. Uh, at the bottom of page 116, he says, but who is to say both non-motion and motion couldn't exist in the Trinity? Seeing that God is triune, could not his essence be without cause while motion eternally exists within the relationship of the three persons as they eternally communicate their love toward one another? Is it not possible that this internal ad intra movement within the Godhead could allow for the three persons to work together ad extra as the moving cause of the universe, end quote. So he's being very clear by what he means here. This isn't a movement outside of God that's causing him to move. It's this is who God is. And I think that's really where the, the scary uh, implications come. He's explicitly affirming that God moves at intra. And uh, this creates problems. Like, like I said, you have uh, the essence and the accidents. There's something outside of God. Even if you say that God can self-move, um, there's still something that God must use that's not himself to move, right? Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it, it would all that is in God is God, then it would just be um, a form of subsistence. Yep. Um, but and, that's not what Jeff is talking about. He's actually talking about God moving himself um, at intro. Yeah, and even if it was the, the essence that moved, um, then you're still moving... Either. You're you're still moving from one like state to another. That's probably the yes. best way to put it. One state the to the other, and so the states are outside of God, and God's dependent on them to accomplish what He's doing. So yeah. you run into I think same Josh Summer did a really good job of talking about that. Um, we're, we're we love Brother Josh, and he's done. He's been very helpful in in talking about these things. Um, but yeah, this is why, you know, going back to what you were saying, Andrew, about being clear, and we have to be very, this is delicate language, right? Mm -hmm. We have to be very careful. I think we tend to throw these terms around without thinking through the implications of them. We have to be precise. Um, you see guys like Francis Turretin, the amount of writing they put into just who God is, like on immutability or the Trinity, you know, it probably goes pages and pages and pages, lengthy dis discussions on these things because they wanted to be absolutely clear. Um, and, and this was no small topic to them. Um, and we have to, we have to really call these guys out who persist in this type of language. They're not careful. They're confusing people, leading people astray. And we, we, we have to stand our ground with these and be very careful and clear with what we mean in our language. Yep. Be very this is not a place we want confusion in at all. No. Who God is. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay. And one other topic we wanted to touch on as it relates to um, uh, the doctrine of God. Um, I think we've talked about immovability, denying motion in God. Jeff spends quite a bit of time talking about that. But uh, he talks about uh, the contingency of God's will. At, at least as it relates to creation and whether or not the world could have been otherwise. And we wanted to touch on that very briefly um, because we thought it was important. Um, but Jeff does talk about this and presents this as an issue in terms of um, at least Aquinas's view of God. Um, but when we're talking about God being able to uh, make other worlds or, or have a, a, a range of options to choose from that are in front of him, um, we would say that God certainly is immutable in his will. God's will does not change. His decree does not change. God doesn't decree one thing today and then it changes tomorrow. Um, we'd be in a hopeless state if that we'd have no assurance that 
um, God's covenants would be true. Our salvation or the cross or the work of Christ would be um, effective eternally. We would have no assurance of that whatsoever. Um, but when we're talking about God, you know, did he have the ability to create otherwise? Or is he really free? Is he really a free being uh, given that he does not change and his will does not change? So we have to look at God's will, um, I think, as not having God's not choosing from a, a list of options. Dolezal talks about this uh, in his book, God Without Parts. Uh, he says, quote, most adherents to the DDS, that's Doctrine of Divine Simplicity, have historically attempted to reconcile God's simplicity and free will by arguing for a conception of freedom that does not require God to stand deliberately before a range of possibilities. And this really goes back to the, the creator-creature distinction, right? We're so, we're, we're so ingrained, and obviously we're bound by, by time and space. We are creatures. We think creaturely, and we have a tendency to impose that language back to God. We, just, yep. we have to be so careful about that. Um, and, and this is really where Jeff's whole problem is. He's imposing creaturely language back to God. Change in motion are, um, are, are attributes of creatureliness. And once you impose them to God, now God is a creature. Now God is corruptible, which Roman one, Romans 1 says is really idolatry. Um, so we have to be very careful about that. So when we're thinking about things like free will in God or God making choices, it's not in the same way that we would make choices. Actually, Dolezal talks about how choice is actually a deficiency, the ability to choose from one thing to another, um, because it, I think... From what he said it was because we're having to move from you know one state of choice to another it's movement it's change it, it's it's a it's a weakness um so god's uh freedom to choose is um is uh not uh, in the same way that we would be able to choose so we have to be very careful when we're using this language um again god is not like us there's this creator creature distinction that uh, requires us to speak of God differently as it relates yeah. to these things. His, his freedom is much higher than our freedom yes. uh, is because yes. our freedom is entirely uh, bounded. Uh, we have a creaturely free will that's uh, dependent on our nature. It, it's compatible with the nature. It, 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 uh, act, it, it uh, assents to its nature, but it, it's dependent on it. Uh, God, the, even the concept of necessity within the Godhead himself starts to break down because how we usually use the word ne uh, necessary, we are implying there's uh, a necessitator and a necessitated. So there's something that makes it necessary and there's the thing that's made necessary. In God, he's just God, one and the same. There's nothing external to him that bounds him in any way whatsoever. So he's completely unbounded, the completely unbounded I am that I am. And mm -hmm. he's not dependent, like you said, on a series of lists to choose how yes. he's going to be. He's, he's above that. He would, if, if he did, he would be dependent on that list, right? right? He's above it. He just simply creates in his perfection uh, immediately. I think one way that helps me think about it is um, because in God, his knowledge and his will – are the same. So how does God know things? Well, it's by his willing those things, right? God knows things via his creating them. It's not like they exist beforehand. He thinks about it and then decides to create them. Like he actually knows us through creating us through his will to create us and through his power creating us. Um, so that's, uh, that's one thing that I think helps a little bit 
but ultimately we have to be able to embrace that there's mystery in the in the Godhead. Yes, he's he's eternal, he's immutable, he couldn't be other than than that he is now. Yet at the same time, there's nothing that bounds him external to him. Uh, and it's even hard to say exactly how he could bound himself for the same reason why the same thing can't create itself because it implies there's a logical prior uh, prior thing that's creating. Uh, and, and that kind of doesn't make much sense. Same thing with um, the point is that he, he he's boundless and uh, he's, it's, it's, it's mysterious, but we know that his freedom is, is a freedom that's not able, that we're not even able to comprehend. It's, it's just beyond anything that we're, we're familiar with. Yep. No, that's absolutely right. It's a, God is, um, it, creation is not absolutely necessary. Um, uh, because, uh, if it were, then, then God would, or it would be, um, it would be necessary by itself. I'm trying to think of the word absolutely or, or ontologically necessary. Yes. As yeah. It's not creature, ontologically it is, necessary yeah, as a creature, as creatures, we are not, um, absolutely necessary. Uh, we yeah. are dependent upon God to be in Acts 17 where, where Sean went before in him, we live and move and have our being. We exist, um, in, you know, as God gives us being, uh, to create, to move and to exist. We cannot self move. We're not, I'll say creatures, only God is the true self-sufficient, uh, self-sufficient one. We are not, we are yes. fully dependent to be upon God. Um, yeah, so th- we are contingent in that sense. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's, that's another important issue, the distinction between, because uh, obviously uh, in, in God himself, uh, our concept of necessary breaks down, but we still can speak of him as necessary in that, like he is by being eternal, like he is, like he couldn't be otherwise and, and the like, and he couldn't, and he can't be conceived to be other than he is. There's a distinction between that and the necessity of the things he decrees, even though that does flow from his will. It, there's a distinction for two reasons. Uh, one Aquinas gets at, which is very good, which is the uh, fact that finite things aren't proportional to their end because their end is infinite. In other words, the creation of things, it's all created for the glory of God. It's, not that they themselves cause the glory of God because God himself is the sufficient end of his own glory, but they help that they're like a reflection of it. Uh, they, they, they point to it. They're created to point to it. And, and, um, uh, but nothing can, uh, perfectly, uh, uh model an infinite reality that is, that it's pointing to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, we can say that God could have created things other ways because uh, because it's not like this is a perfect reflection of the glory that's in God in himself. Uh, so he, he, he has the freedom to do that. And the other, the other consideration that's important is the uh, consideration of calls what are not calls. I should say um, in God's aseity, uh, the the same act by which he he uh, he himself exists is also in that he abides in is the same act by which he produces us. But the difference is that his the end of himself is an infinite end, requiring the entirety of his of his actuality. Uh, it's the required the entirety of his act leads to his end, and it requires no additional effort so to speak no no additional uh act to create creation on top of that because you have to ask like how many how much more energy do you need from an infinite effect 
infinite calls rather to get to a, another finite effect. Is it infinity plus one or something? No, it's still infinity. So um, it's, it doesn't require any additional uh, effort on his part. So that's another thing that distinguishes um, uh, the necessity of him as he is in himself and the necessity of, of creatures uh, because they, it didn't require any additional actuality in him to create our world or to create an infinite number of worlds. It's no yep. harder for him to do that. Yep. And I think that's this is really the most difficult aspect to deal with when it, we're talking about divine simplicity and immutability. How can God be free if he can't change and the things that he creates are a result of his immutable will? But I, uh, and it, it requires us to, to really, again, be precise with our language. We're, we're not speaking univocally, but we're speaking truly of God as best we can. Um, ultimately, there is mystery in that. There is mystery in that we cannot comprehend God as he really is. Um, but I think he has provided us ways, explanations to be able to, at least on a very basic level, understand it, to speak truly um, of who God is in that respect. Um, but I, I do think, it, at least in my own study, that is the most difficult thing to to deal with when we're talking about immutability and simplicity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dolezal um, says that himself. It's, the, it's probably the thorniest issue of divine simplicity. But we can understand how uh, we can still truly speak of God as being uh, absolutely free, uh, yes. while at the same time not changeable or prone to change or having become actualized from a series of potentials. We can say all of that and just understand that if we can't understand it too well, it's because we're not using univocal language and yes. God in himself is not like us. Yes. Amen. Amen. And then actually, real quick, before we talk about some of the historical issues um, and then wrap up the show, um, Jeff definitely seems to have issue with um, how Thomas talks about differentiation in God. Um, he seems to think that there is a conundrum when Aquinas says that there is not differentiation in God because of simplicity, but then there's differentiation as it relates to the Trinity. Uh, he says on page 138, quote, Thomas wanted to have it both ways, a God without differentiation and a God with differentiation. Um, and then he says on page 144, quote, if, as Aquinas said, his intellect and his object are altogether the same, then how can there be a real distinction between the Father and the Son? And he doesn't seem to under to understand uh, relational distinction. And that doesn't actually really compound the essence, right? And he really misunderstands Aquinas, um, and Dolzal actually deals with this very nicely in an article he wrote. Um, but understanding that a relation does not compose or, or break up the essence like an absolute property would. If we really said that goodness and mercy were actually distinct in God, then we would be violating divine simplicity because those are absolute attributes. But we're talking about relational attributes that does not create any accidents in God. So we can speak of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from their relations of origin only um, as being the distinguishing marks of the persons without dividing the essence and creating yep. uh, divisibility in the essence. He does not seem to get that at all. And I, I found that to be, I think I found that to be pretty astounding because um, hmm. Aquinas talks about that distinction in great detail and pretty good. Like the relations are what, you know, the persons are relations and that's what distinguishes them. And they really exist in God. Um, it's not like it's some logical or modal um, apprehension of, 
or, or discussion of God. They're real distinctions in God, but they're distinctions that do not divide just by mm -hmm. virtue of being what a relation is. Yes. Um, um, that's what Dolezal talks about. Yeah, and very brief illustration of that, just because that might be kind of new language to, to some of our listeners. Um, so the reason, the way you can prove that a relational uh, property doesn't add anything to them is by a simple thought experiment. I'm right now sitting to the right of Sean. So you could say I have the property of rightness in, com uh, uh, in comparison to Sean, and he has leftness, right? But if, say, just Sean just vanished from existence right now, I haven't changed in myself, but you couldn't predicate you, that relation of rightness to me. You couldn't say that I have that property of rightness anymore, which shows you that it's not actually a property that exists within the, the, the thing you're discussing. It doesn't add anything to them and themselves. It's merely a way of, 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 of describing uh, the relation between uh, two things. And in God, it's actually between God and himself through his different modes of subsistence, which is a mystery for sure. Um, yes. We did have an article about that way, way back when, where we dove into that a little more. But, uh, but hopefully that's enough, at least for now, to show that, like, hey, yeah, like these properties exist, but we're not compounding the essence. We're not adding new, like, actual properties to them. It's, and that's why he can be the one same God and still be three in and of himself. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And, and for further study on that, I'd point everybody to um, James Dolezal wrote a, a scholarly article on this um, called Trinity, Simplicity, and God's Personal Relations, where he really expounds um, a lot on Aquinas' view of relations and, and, and how that does not compound, um, how does, that does not compound the Trinity, really. Um, so I think that is a resource that is very helpful if you want further study. Um, so wrapping up things here, I know we've been going a long time, but again, we, we have to, we have to be clear and concise in our language and that requires us to go long. Um, I want to talk about the appendices, um, because they're, it's very interesting. So Jeff, you know, tries to use a biblical and philosophical ground for why, um, these views of God are wrong, but in natural theology, natural revelation, et cetera. Um, but then he, he has two appendices, one on the reformers, um, alleged, uh, full rejection of, of, uh, Aristotelian or Aquinas's theology. And then John Owen, how he was not among the scholastics. Um, so in the first one, uh, he points out, uh, that Melanchthon, Luther and Calvin really were against, um, really were against Aquinas and they were to some extent, I don't think anyone's denying that. Um, and I think that uh, I would say that all the reformers, to some extent, would have been against Aquinas. I mean, he was a Roman Catholic. Uh, there were aspects of his theology they would not have ascertained or um, assimilated into their theological system. Um, but he paints it as if they rejected them in totem. There's, there's no distinction as to, you know, okay, well, they rejected him here, but they accepted him here. It's just, he, they didn't like Aquinas, you know, and, and so Aquinas should not be considered or as part of the reform thought. Um, but there's some problems with that, I think. So he points out Luther, right? Luther uh, did actually speak out against Aquinas um, and did not have kind words for Aquinas. Um, but there's actually some historical doubt as to whether he really un had firsthand knowledge of Aquinas, um, uh, Alistair McGrath points us out 
Um, he says, since the publication of Joseph Lort's Reformation in Deutschland, 39, there has been a fairly general consensus that Luther had little firsthand knowledge of Aquinas' writings, a view given particularly clear expression and he, and he cites the source. So it, it seems that Luther may not have had a very uh, clear understanding of Aquinas and maybe was speaking out of ignorance rather than actually understanding, uh, speaking out of, you know, I understand Aquinas to say this and therefore I'm rejecting it. Um, but maybe more out of a knee-jerk reaction to what he thought Aquinas was saying rather than um, just rejecting him with sufficient knowledge. Um, so I think that's um, that's important to point out. He also talks about Melanchthon, Luther's friend, Luther, uh, who was instrumental in the, Ref in the Reformation um, as rejecting Aristotelian thought. Um, this is definitely not the case. Uh, Melanchthon wrote a commentary on Aristotle's ethics and had favorable things to say about Aristotle, um, although clearly not entirely. Um, but there's an article um, written about that um, called Aristotelian Practical Philosophy from Melanchthon to Eisheart Protestant Commentaries on the Neomachian Ethics 1529 to 1682 that goes into that in much more detail where he did actually have some favorable things to say about Aristotle. He didn't reject him in, in total. Um, and then I, I think the most important aspect to this with regards to Lutheran Melanchthon is the Augsburg Confession, which is the Lutheran Confession, right? You know, the Book of Concord, which makes up, you know, Luther's catechisms, the Augsburg Confession, as well as some other writings. Um, but Article 1 is explicitly about God, right? It lays out the doctrine of God. And I'm going to read this. It's, it's, it's pretty short, but I think it will give us an idea where I'm coming from. So Article 1 of the Confession says, um, Our churches, with common consent, do teach that de the decree of the Council of Nicaea uh, concerning the unity of the divine essence and concerning the three persons is true and to be believed without any doubting. That is to say, there is one divine essence which is called and which is God, eternal, without body, without parts, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, visible and invisible. And yet there are three persons of the same essence and power, who also are co-eternal, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and the term person they use as the fathers have used it to signify not a part or quality in another, but that which subsists of itself. Now, it's interesting. This is language that Aquinas used, subsistence in the, uh, in the relations or the persons of the Godhead. And they're identifying themselves with Nicaea. They're, they're identifying themselves with the Orthodox faith of the church. Um, and they're saying that this is uh, what is to be believed. But what's interesting, the Catholic Church came back with something called confutation or the confutation, which was a response to the Augsburg Confession. And they affirmed that what they said in Article 1 was actually very true. And they wanted to point that out especially. They even used the word especially when talking about the doctrine of God here. So I'm going to read just a little bit of this. They said, especially when in the first article they confessed the unity of the divine essence in the three persons, according to the decree of the Council of Nicaea, their Confession must be accepted since it agrees in all respects with the rule of faith in the Roman Church. For the Council of Nicaea, convened under the Emperor Constantine the Great, has always been regarded as infallible. Whereat 318 bishops, eminent and venerable for holiness of life, martyrdom and learning, after investigating and diligently examining the Holy Scriptures, set forth this article, which here they confess concerning the unity, the essence, and the trinity of persons. And what's interesting is Jeff will point out that uh, on page 199, he points out that the Summa, which was 
um, the big work of, of Thomas Aquinas. It was the primary source used against the Reformation. And he'll point out on page 53, quote, his, that's Aquinas's, uh, Aquinas, his teaching has arguably been the single biggest influence on the theology of the Catholic Church, end quote. So if that's the case, then the Catholic Church is coming at this from a Thomistic worldview, right? And which would ultimately identify with Orthodox Christianity, Biblical Christianity. So if they're agreeing with Luther and Melanchthon, Melanchthon would have been the primary writer of the Augsburg Confession. If they're agreeing with that, then they're saying that they're identifying themselves with Thomas, right? At least to, at least to some extent. Um, so this idea that they rejected Aquinas and that this wasn't this kind of thinking wasn't part of the Reformation is is absurd on a historical level. Um, certainly, there was some rejection of Aristotle and Aquinas, no doubt, um, but not entirely. And on the core issue that we're talking about here, which is the doctrine of God, clearly not. Um, mm -hmm. It was in their confession as Lutherans and the Catholic Church affirmed it while holding to um, Aquinas's view of God um, very closely. Yeah. So I, I think that from a historical standpoint, I think that's important to point out. Um, I, I think what we have to be careful of, this is nothing new. And again, we're, we're not stopping with Aquinas. We're not stopping with the reformers. We're saying this is biblical, historical Orthodox Christianity. We're identifying with the church since, since the scriptures were written. You know, this is what the scriptures teach and the church has seen as being taught and we're identifying with that. And that's what uh, Melanchthon and Luther were doing. Hey, this is Council of Nicaea. We're going back all the way back here. We believe this is biblical and consistent. Um, and we're identifying. The Council are going to say, yep, you guys are good on this. We have no, we have no problem with that. Um, yeah. So it, it seems that Jeff did not do his homework. And if he did, he's misrepresenting um, uh, at a level that, um, that is concerning. No, he, he's. Do you guys have any comments on that? Yeah, he, he he's done that at least a few times in this book. I I didn't have the opportunity to look up every reference to a figure that he made and study it in uh, context, but I can at least name you one. Um, Aquinas at the end on that same appendix that you're talking about, uh, Dan. Uh, he talks about some of the bad views of Aquinas, and a lot of them def like are for real views that Aquinas had, and they should be rejected. Uh, but yep. one thing that he said that caught my attention was on penal substitution. He he painted Aquinas as denying penal substitutionary atonement, uh, which I thought was interesting because I remembered when I went through the Summa's an uh, audio format two years back, uh, as I, I was surprised by the statements that Aquinas had on the penal substitutionary atonement, where he seemed to affirm all the basic elements. I was like, well, I, I can't be that badly misrem misremembering it, can I? So I look it up in context, and sure enough, if you go to Thomas's section on the atonement, very strong statements about how Christ bore the sins of his people to satisfy the justice of God on the cross. He says that specifically. So it's not, it's not a ransom theory where it's like, oh, I'm just illegally get, getting you out of the devil's bonds, but I'm not satisfying God's justice. He explicitly says Christ is satisfying God's justice on the cross for his people. That, what is that but penal substitutionary atonement? So I looked at the reference that he had in his book, and if you go to the spot in the Summa, I encourage everyone to do so. We don't have time now. It's, it's not talking about the atonement at all. It's on a section dealing with 
uh, sons inheriting the sins of the fathers. And he's referencing the text of Ezekiel about how a son shall not die from the sins of the father. And he's saying, oh, someone can't bear the sins of another one. But then in the same section, he says, unless they were by some way one, which is exactly what biblical Christianity teaches. Christ is our federal head and we are spiritually his members. And because of that, he can represent us on the cross. And that's more or less what Aquinas would view it. Of course, then you get into the issues where he adds the, the works of the saints as part of that process. They're super, the works of super irrigation and also how, Oh, you receive that at your baptism, but then you have to do works of, uh, of, of, of repentance and contrition to re and state uh, favor in God. So I would, I would call it kind of a partial uh, uh, substitution, but he does ha- have the basic principles and the way he, he uh, represents them is just completely inaccurate. So, and that's not the only example that I noticed, but that's at least one big one concerning the guy that he's saying he's writing the book at about and has studied for years. And I got to say, either he he didn't read it himself and got that from a secondhand source or else that's there's no excuse for that level of misrepresentation. He, it's yeah. just not the section on the atonement at all that he was referencing. And, and just for if for those of you who have or are going to read the book, that's on pages 209 to 211, just so you can go and, and look at that discussion that Jeff has. Um, so I guess, uh, Sean, or Andrew, do you want to talk about John Owen? Um, sure, yeah, briefly. Um, so he has a last appendix, which uh, comes from John Owen's uh, biblical theology. And this is presented as uh, supporting his position basically uh, it's like oh john owen was not among the scholastics and it's definitely true that john owen had some harsh things to say about the scholastics in this section but there are a few things that have to be kept in mind um one of them is the translation itself uh as one uh reviewer from Re- uh, reformation 21 uh he reviewed the uh, john owen's biblical theology back in 2017 said this is more of an interpretation than a translation of John Owen's work because he'll, he'll just straight up just put whole sentences and remove others uh, from John Owen's work. So um, you, you got to take it with a grain of salt, uh, but we'll, we'll assume the general tenor is, is accurate. Uh, but if we do, we have to remember the context of John Owen's work, which was dealing with uh, his approach to systematic theology, following the covenantal, structure in scripture so he's not he's not following uh the method of just treating all these topics in isolation from each other his main purpose is saying hey we we should follow the covenantal pattern of of exploring how god reveals himself throughout uh revelation when it came to the doctrine of god himself uh he he was quite explicit um sorry let me get to this section <laughs> yeah, he did. Uh, and there's one line that I wanted to to pull out uh, from that. Um, you might actually have it up, Dan. It's where he's talking about that we must use language. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, um, don't use. And this is from um, a brief declaration and vindication of the doctrine of the Trinity and also the person of the satisfaction of Christ. Um, in brief for Owen is not, you know, a few pages. It's like about 100 pages. But um yeah, he, he talks about the necessity of using language, essentially necessary language that is not expressed when talking about the Trinity. He doesn't just, and he doesn't just say, well, you can use it. He thinks it's necessary. 
Yes. Um, we must use that kind of language to talk about the Trinity. Yeah, and we, um, we got it up here right now. It says, wherefore, okay. in the declaration of the doctrine of the Trinity, we may lawfully, nay, we must necessarily make use of other words, phrases, and expressions than what are literally and uh, syllabically contained in the scripture, but teach no other things. Uh, moreover, whatever is so revealed in the scripture is no less true and divine as to whatever necessary, necessarily follows thereon. Uh, than it is as unto that which is principally revealed and directly expressed. And then elsewhere um, in the same work, he, he, uh, he talks of, when he's talking about the Trinity himself, he's, he's using the same language that Thomas is using, the same scholastic language. Uh, elsewhere, he talks about the uh, archetypal versus ectypal knowledge of God. Like, again, this is, this is the same phraseology that Aquinas and others would use. He so he doesn't. Yeah, so he doesn't reject using this kind of language and talking about God this way uh, when it comes to yeah the doctrine of God himself. He's He was more talking specifically about um, how we structure our systematic theologies. That was kind of his main point. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, in, in that same work on the Trinity, Owen will use the, the terms of the person subsisting in an especial manner, and that's very yeah. similar to how uh, Aquinas talks about the persons, right? Um, in question 29, article four of the Summa. Um, it, so he, he's falling in that same line of, of thinking. Um, and, and even, and then there was a, an article that you had brought up before, uh, Andrew, um, from the Gospel Coalition, kind of going through a uh, academic review of Owen's biblical theology. And they talk about in there that he was trained in Aristotelian thought and that he did use, it says, quote, Owen himself uses Aristotelian categories and concepts in many of his works, like the death of death and the death of Christ, end quote. So he, again, it's it's taking that distinction of where did they use it, where they didn't. It's like he's taking an, an element where he spoke out against these things, seemingly anyways, and then imposing that on everything he did, which was not the case. Uh, so in, and then, of course, on the very issue that we're talking about, which Jeff doesn't address, um, he actually does um, talk about these things. He doesn't address this article, that writing on the Trinity that, uh, that Owen clearly uses the language of Aquinas um, and ultimately scripture and biblical Christianity um, to talk about the persons of the Trinity and how God is subsisting and the simplicity of God and all of those same concepts that are there. Um, so it, there's, there's really no discernment that I can see, uh, in Jeff's evaluation of, of Owen. Yep. And, uh, by the way, uh, I know we references from the gospel coalition. I, I've wanted to disclaimer. We don't usually like the gospel coalition that much around <laughs> here, but in that case, it was a good article and it was from a few years back. So I, I don't know if they've changed. See, look, we're being discerning. Now. We're taking so. the good and throwing it the bad. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you know, just some closing some closing mark uh, notes here. Again, we have to be clear on who God is, right? We need to speak clearly and concisely as best we can. Number two, we need to call out men who persist in these false teachings. And we're talking about God. It, as we said before, it's one thing to speak out of ignorance when you're learning and growing, maybe as a new Christian and these concepts are new to you and you might make some of these mistakes. It's another thing to publish your work, persist in it for years into into kind of uh, dig yourself in the trenches in light of truth. Um, we have to, you know, I'm going to be using some flagrant language. We have to stop playing footsie with these guys. We have to we have to stop beating around the bush 
and we have to call these men out who persist in these things. These are people within our own ranks, mm -hmm. people who call themselves Reformed Baptists, people who call themselves 1689ers, who, hold, who say they hold to our confession of faith, but they really don't follow what the framers of that confession or the Reformed would have held to, or Biblical Orthodox would have held to for that matter. We have to call these guys out. Um, and it's okay for men who persist in these things to uh, to put the finger on them and to point them out and to call them out strongly. Um, because one, it's leading others astray. It's causing confusion. It's not causing clarity. Um, and it's ultimately going to the heart of what we believe. And we, we can't sit by and, and let people do that. And I think that's why he's able, has been able to so long, guys, and also guys like James White, who um, have... Uh, seems to he's seeming to follow along with with Jeff and seems to have been teaching uh, things along these lines for years as well um, is because we've as the church I think have been more concerned about other things and we've turned our attention away so when these things come out they're able to fly under the radar with little resistance and we as Christians need to reevaluate our priorities when we're dealing with theological or whatever issue it might be we must start with God uh, it's scripture is undergirded by God's unchangeable nature, creation, existence, everything. We have to get God right. Our How we live is grounded in who God is. If we get God wrong, we're going to live improperly, or at the very least inconsistently, which is still a problem. Um, so we, we see this as very, very important. This is not a secondary issue that we can toy around with. We cannot play around with the doctrine of God. If we do that, we're going to run into all kinds of issues, and it could ultimately lead to damnable heresy, as we see saw with Arius in the 4th century um, and, and those who tried to undermine the person of Christ and the Incarnation, the hypostatic union. It can lead to these things, and we have to be very, very careful when we're, we're dealing with, uh, with the doctrine of God. But I, I think those are my closing remarks. Sean, Andrew, anything else you want to add before we close? Yeah, I, I could foresee somebody in the audience being like, okay, you've, you've, you've demonstrated that, that Jeff believes in uh, divine mobility, he, he admits it, and you've demonstrated that wrong. Really, what is, what is the big deal? Why does that really affect the doctrine of God? And ultimately, it produces, whether Jeff wants to say this or not, it produces a God that changes. Um, and when you have a God that changes, you no longer have the I am. And he, he's, yeah. he's actually fairly, he, he says he affirms uh, divine immutability, but he also says things like, well, if you held the divine uh, immobility, um, you have a God that isn't, his wrath isn't kindled against anger when people, um, people act wickedly in this world. He's, he's using the language of change and he's trying to use it univocally. That God is changing; He's becoming angry. Now we might say that from our perspective, in time, the way it looks to us, it is God becoming angry. But ultimately, that's an internal act, and it's just this 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 cascade of well, change begets more change in God. And and like you said, Dan, even though perhaps Jeff is not in the most unorthodox spot he could be, and he's holding these things inconsistently, but he does run a seminary. And he is teaching yes. his students these things, I would imagine. So whether he might not t take these things to their logical conclusion, others will. And we need mm -hmm. to, it's, it, it does no good to sit on the sidelines and be like, eh, 
yeah, he, he has a, a different doctrine of God than we do, but is it really that big of a deal? No, it, it will it will affect things. Yeah. Um, we don't say this to be mean because we dislike Jeff right. personally. I've, I've never met him. Um, I've only read this book of his. Um, and But this is important, and we have to stand on it. And ultimately, having small, well, seemingly small errors in the doctrine of God can lead to bigger things. And they are ultimately... If you have a God that changes, you don't have the I am of scripture. Mm-hmm. I understand he's, he's holding these two things in, um, and he doesn't realize they're contradictory, but ultimately you don't have the God, the I am of scripture. And we want to have the I am of scripture. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ultimately what this all does is it makes God more creaturely. Mm-hmm. It makes him more yep. look like the creature. And like, and, and he says one of his goals of the book is to, make god more relatable essentially or at least that's the conclusion of his book it's it's like they can't have a relatable god so that's clearly motivating him but we should ask if we we should want to make god in his divine essence more relatable to us and i would say that when you when you make god more creaturely not only are you lowering god himself but you're also undermining the just the the gap of the chasm that Christ had to transcend to be man and to walk among us. You undermine mm. the fact that Christ alone can truly reveal God to us. As the scripture I said earlier, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father. He has declared him. He's the only one who can declare him. And through him, we have a high priest who, who, uh, who can be touched with our infirmities, who, who, who has that kind of experience, that relational experience of, 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 of creatureness, um, mm. yet while still being fully God at the same time, the essence is not being, uh, not being confused or mixed together, both perfect God and perfect man. Um, and, and that also makes us appreciate the heights that he takes us when he unites us to himself. Uh, what a great, marvelous God that we're uplifted to so that, when you understand God right, you better understand the opening line of the Lord's Prayer, our Father, which art in heaven. You understand how significant it is for him to become our Father, he to come near to us like that, and also how significant it is that he's in heaven and he brings us to heaven with him. So you get that. Mm-hmm. You understand the imminence and the transcendence of God better. You can appreciate him better, and you can worship him better. And that's the end of all creation is to worship God in a way that's pleasing to him and that is truthful according to his nature as he reveals himself in scripture. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we really really minimize the incarnation when we try to make God relatable. God was, um, in a sense, relatable to us through the incarnation on a hu- in his human uh, nature only. Yes. Um, and, and so we can he can identify with us in that way. Yeah, you're right. That is a chasm that has to be that has to be crossed because that divide between creature and creator is, is vast, is vast. Yes. Yep. Amen. Amen. Um, so just real quick, there's some, let's see, classical Christian literature. Sir, I was confused by Johnson's distinction between immobility and impassibility. It's greatly helpful. Okay. I'm glad that was helpful. And that is a good book, by the way. Um, I think uh, Richard Barcellus certainly would have contributed to that. So you, you're in good hands there. Uh, and then Desiree, actually, my wife, actually asked, uh, do you guys acquaint us with Regenerate seeing how he's a Roman Catholic? Um, I would say probably not. Yeah, yeah I, I would say, say no. definitely. I would, I would, say, I would no. say probably, very likely not. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Given he was Roman Catholic, and and yeah. there were certainly issues that he he had there. Um, but like we said, we're taking we're taking what is consistent biblically and jettisoning jettisoning. I can't speak today. Jettisoning the rest. Um, so yeah. All right. Well, I think that is all for today, everyone. I know it's a very long episode. This is almost uh, akin to the Leighton Flowers episode. <laughs> I, think, I think we missed <laughs> it by fifteen well, minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but like we said, we we have to we have to discuss these things in detail. We can't breeze through them. But I hope it's been helpful. Um, please, if if anyone has questions or or comments, or please um, comment on the episode, and we can try and answer what we can or point you to good resources. But I hope this has been helpful and, and beneficial. Um, we, we would encourage you to read Jeff's book, The Failure of Natural Theology. Um, go study these things for yourself. Don't just take our word for it. Go read it um, and and compare what Jeff says uh, to what biblical orthodoxy says um, and, and study these things for yourself. Um, but with that, we thank you for joining us. And until next time, uh, take care, everybody. Have a great weekend and Lord's Day. God bless.